Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Luke Younger, who makes music as Helm. Helm released a new album, Chemical Flowers, just recently. We recorded this conversation, I think, just prior to the release of that record, which came out on Pan. It's a wonderful record. The press release describes it as his most direct work to date, which I think is very interesting. That implies to me maybe sometimes something that is quite immediately ingestible, and that wasn't my experience with this record at all. It's a very gloopy, sloshy record. I feel like it would feel like warm jelly if you were to hold it. I refer to the fact that it feels like you're kind of in the womb on this record, just getting signals kind of pulsing through via a membrane. I had a great time speaking to to Luke about this one and a great time speaking to him about his important records as well. He had a very eclectic array of records to talk about here. And as always, you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Luke's picks and links as well to Luke's own music. So without any further delay... Here's Helm on Crucial Listening. Luke, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hello Jack, thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. So, like always, you've brought three important albums to the table here for us to talk about, but before we turn to the records that you've brought, I want to ask about your own new album, Chemical Flowers, which is released on Pan. Uh, so, from the information that I've read about it already, I understand that it was recorded at no studios on the Essex countryside. So, could you tell me about the studio and uh what led you to to record the album there um well i've been using i've been going there for on and off for about well i guess the first time i went was 2002 as an invite by john who owns the place um and he he also plays in a band called liberes and around yeah it was sort of like 2002 um I was in a band with a bunch of other friends of mine at the time, and um, he offered us some, rec- you know, like a free day's recording. Uh, so we went, took him up on his offer, and then yeah, I've just kind of used it, like as pretty much a central base for my own recording uh, ever since, really, just because I, it's quite close to me in terms of transport, you know, but I, I can kind of be there in like and just over an hour from where I live. And I really like John as well, you know, we've kind of become sort of like quite good friends and collaborators and stuff over the years with, you know, like I've released his band's music and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it just kind of feels like a a bit of a second home in a way, you know, without sort of wanting to put too sort of corny a spin on it. But yeah. <laughs> and 
reading as well about your process for the record it sounded like essentially and i don't know whether this is typical of the way that you approach recording your music when you're there but essentially that it's you and the record and that's it for kind of a, a continuous burst of you know just working the record till, it, till it's done is that is that right yeah pretty much i mean these days i kind of like i can only really sort sort of work with one central focus these days um for you know i i no particular reason I guess other than just you know I can't really kind of my mind can't really sort of like process sort of multiple things or creative things going on at once so yeah like I mean for this record I was pretty you know like centralized within the studio and just kind of like going there for uh, extended periods at a time normally like three days at the most and just kind of diving into it basically um with every record before with Olympic Mess, I think there was kind of a bit more, um, the process was spread out across different places. So I was recording a lot more at home and then bringing things into the studio to kind of like work on a little bit there and um, also kind of like doing stuff on the road because I was traveling a lot more at the time then as well. So um, this one did f- kind of feel much more like a kind of, record that was centered around the studio and the studio itself kind of you know sort of became an a pretty integral part to the making of it i guess yeah i mean one of the words that really comes up for me when i listen to the record is it does feel quite incubated um yeah i'm full of thoughts of pregnancy at the moment because my wife is expecting but i mean there's something that felt very womb-like about it for me i mean there's a lot of sloshing water and also a sense of being almost um muffled and enclosed i mean do you do you think that's probably a a, a product of uh the kind of environment that you were in at the time or is that just perhaps uh to do with the fact that that's just the direction that you are heading with this one it could have done i mean it's it's difficult to say really if it did it wasn't conscious but you know i'm firmly well happy to accept that you know these like things may have an influence on the subconscious whilst it's being made you know um but it, it, it I, I think one thing i kind of like that sort of became quite um apparent to me sort of halfway through making it was that it kind of did feel like a more of a kind of like more of a kind of swamp like atmospheric record mm. um whereas the last one was perhaps maybe a little bit lighter and a little bit more kind of i don't know played with sort of themes of um that well that could be perceived as being a bit more uplifting i guess um and this one kind of did feel a bit more kind of like dark and atmospheric and yeah just kind of more just bleak i guess a bit bleaker but you know it wasn't really that's again it wasn't the intention it was just kind of like you know just at one point i just kind of stopped and i was like oh shit you know this is kind of a bit of a didn't really expect it to be like this but you know fair enough (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And you work with JG Thelwell as well for the string arrangement on I Knew You Would Respond, which yeah. gives that track such a a distinctive twist. Like I, I obviously it's difficult to picture what it would have sounded like otherwise, but um I mean, Yeah, well it was it was sounding quite um it was kind of a a weird track because it I spent a lot of time on it, um, just sort of going back and forth playing with the structure and I 
kind of it was sort of already unlike anything I'd kind of done previously. I mean, maybe the closest I could have like compared it to was like the um, the blue scene track from the World in Action EP, which kind of plays with the you know sort of the multiple loops and the saxophone and stuff. But um, but the, this one kind of seemed to have a bit more of kind of I don't know like. In in my head, it kind of had all, like an almost sort of like regal, uh, exotica kind of feel to it, um, and I guess I wanted to sort of elevate that and heighten the um, that kind of feel of it more. And the the most obvious way of doing it to me was to get a string section in on it. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I kind of basically just approached jg thurwell kind of semi out of the blue really um mainly because i knew that he was uh he'd already been listening to my music and i've been a fan of his as well for a really long time and we have a couple of mutual friends and it was uh drew mcdowell who put us both in touch all ah, right and then um yeah he was up for it and he yeah he came to london he, he was coming to london actually like randomly sort of um the week after I'd asked him anyway so we just met up and chatted about it and then a month later it was all recorded and I was mixing it so yeah it happened quite quickly and it was um you know kind of quite a nice sort of semi surreal thing in a way um to have him involved you know because I think he's a pretty amazing like musician and artist himself so yeah it's yeah fantastic i mean how what's it like bringing someone else in in that scenario i mean we've spoken about the fact that you did work on this record quite continually and and effectively alone for the most part i mean was there any part of you that was like oh well, gosh what's going to happen here because you're bringing in suddenly this external influence into a process which has largely been by the sounds of it rather introspective yeah i mean <clears throat> there's always like an element of uncertainty about it and whether it's going to work and also you know I've, I've never done any these were just ideas that I had you know there was never any way of knowing that these ideas would ever actually sound good do you know what I mean right. um, yeah. you know uh, so th there's an element of like ooh, you know this could go completely wrong um, or it could sort of end up being um, well I, I, I think my main worry was kind of like having the uh the string parts sort of become something that could be perceived like I was trying to kind of like make a jump into the neoclassical kind of world, you know, yeah. which was all that composition, this modern composition thing, which I just kind of have like no interest in at all, really. Like if anything, like my desire to get like to bring these elements in is kind of more of a love of like kind of old 70s progressive rock music and even stuff like the Beatles you know I mean like yeah just like hearing elements like these kind of like musical elements and recognizable themes kind of juxtaposed and mixed with very sort of like abstract electronic sounds mm. um, I guess that's something I was kind of like interested in sort of exploring on a musical level this time I mean the other strings as well that really caught my ear are the I believe there's strings anyway, but on You Are The Database. Um, yeah. Which is quite, quite terrifying, really. I think especially that late into the record, it's uh, it really hits quite hard. I mean, who who worked on those strings? Was that J.G. Thurwell as well? or was That was J.G. as well, yeah. So he, we, we, he did... Um 
he did four pieces out of the eight um, and they were the four that I felt uh, could best be elevated or sort of like amplified with this kind of like I don't know just like a, a sense of the drama and the atmosphere like heightened um, and those were the ones that he kind of worked on so it, it was the yeah the second one um, I knew you respond you are the database chemical flowers the final track and um, toxic race course the uh, one which opens the second side those were the ones that he contributed to I mean, just hearing you talk about as well and just mention a few of the track names, I mean, I've always been quite struck, I think, by the titles of your pieces and your albums. There's something that feels, I think, quite satisfying about the way that they roll out phonetically and also the way that they kind of mangle meanings from, you know, the side of someone who perhaps doesn't have the context that you do of, you know, actually assembling them. I mean... I don't know yeah. how easy it is to articulate what leads to the formation of these titles, but uh, you know, is there anything that you can kind of share as to to how you come to formulate the uh, sort of titles that that kind of cap the pieces? Well, it's, some of them have kind of like you know, like semi sort of intentional kind of meanings like behind them. Um, you know, I mean, like sometimes I'm thinking about something and then you know, re- related to something going on in my life related to music or whatever you know and then I'll just like think of a phrase and I'll be like oh well, that kind of that works you know that, that that'll make a nice track title and then it, a lot of the time the, the other ones like a couple of ones you just mentioned you know they're kind of just things I hear in daily life that I think are kind of amusing and removing them from the context they originally appear uh, and then putting them in this other kind of like context kind of you know it abstracts them a bit further and kind of just makes it i don't know gives them a sort of i mean there's an element of humor in some of them as well you know or or like absurdist kind of humor i guess Uh, that's sort of like something i'm trying to portray just so it doesn't all become this like dour serious thing i guess right yeah of course i mean actually on that point that definitely feels like it connects with one of the records in particular that you've selected as part of your important albums list but um we'll we'll get to that shortly i mean what else have you got on the horizon beyond the album launch i mean understand you've got a a, quite a special show um supporting gazelle twin coming up in september don't know if you can mention yeah in 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 walthamstow uh which is kind of a really nice it's a really nice thing to be doing actually because uh i'm from E4, which is just down the road, a place called Hyams Park. Um, and Walthamstow's kind of as, you know, I, I guess this is like the closest I'll ever get to playing a local, you know, like a local hometown show. So, mm. um, and it's this year, the London, Walthamstow is London's borough of culture, um, you know, which kind of is kind of crazy to me to think now but uh you know thinking about what what it was like 25 years ago yeah so luke turner from the quietus just kind of asked if i'd be up for playing with gazelle twin there because he's part of the organization of the event and yeah sort of jumped at it really fantastic um so yeah doing that and then i'm also kind of working on a uh well i'm not not also kind of working i am working on a uh (laughs) a soundtrack for a dance uh performance 
which um, is kind of like coming together slowly, but this will be sort of like ready by the end of the year. Uh, so this is kind of like my next project that I'm sort of jumping into immediately after the record. But, um, you know, good to keep busy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You've, you've done stuff like that before, haven't you? Because I think I remember seeing a performance that you did at the Tate, which was also had a collaborative dance element to it. Oh, yeah. Well, that was in the, the collaboration with... Um, the Charles Atlas, the yes. uh, filmmaker and video artist, yeah, and uh, a dancer, or I think she's more of a performance artist actually, but uh, Joanna Constantine. Um, yeah, we did that. That 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 was kind of more of a sort of improvised kind of group performance where each person was sort of improvising within their own kind of artistic discipline right um, rather than something you know that this will be um this thing that i'm working on at the moment it's just going to be a, a soundtrack there's going to be no live performance or anything and it will be performed uh, regularly over you know sort of time the next few years i guess so my input will just be to record it and then they can have a cd or a file which they can press play on afterwards you know um but yeah that's kind of it's going to be a, a pretty heavy project to sort of get into right just when i'm sort of you know kind of dealing with the fact that there's a an album coming into the world you know but yeah <laughs> of course yeah i mean one question i did want to ask on that is that i mean do you think about your music differently or, or how do you approach what you're doing when you know that the music that you're generating is going to be in dialogue with some form of physical movement uh, well i've never really I've, I've never really done it before so i guess i'm gonna that that's something i'll be finding out in the mm. over over the course of the next few months you know but um yeah i mean it, it, it kind of like i've i've seen some of the I've seen some of the movements that the dancers are going to be doing, like some of the parts of it, the opening parts, and I can, you know, and it's kind of, uh, it's a bit re more reassuring to see that, and then you kind of understand why they've maybe got in touch with me, because some of the movements, I think, are quite sort of similar to some of the, you know, sounds that occupy my pieces, so, you know, I think it'll be okay, fingers crossed. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, you know, I'm really enjoying the the new record, and um, it's wonderful to get a bit of background on it. And uh, you know, I've also been over the past week listening to these uh, important records that you put forward. So, one question I like to ask is about how you thought about the framing of the word "important." I mean, was there any particular way that you interpreted that word in order to come up with the list that you've brought here? Well, I thought about like. There's many different ways I that you could in well that I thought you could interpret this. You could either pick records that were sort of pivotal in the discovery of music. Um, so you know, like oh, what was the first record you ever bought? You know that that's an important record, mm. um, even though the first record you bought you probably wouldn't still listen to or hold in any kind of like regard other than it was you know the fact it was the first record you bought yeah um or there's the record you heard you know somewhere down the line that kind of like turns you on to a particular artist or something but kind of you know that you listen to kind of pretty much on a regular basis um but you know it's more more of one you keep coming back to rather than you know it just kind of had this like huge like impact at the time 
So, I mean, I, I, I've kind of sort of tried to do a little bit of both, I suppose. Um, and like been, I've tried to be a bit mindful of uh, going back to the source of something and think about records that maybe I was unaware of their impact at the moment. But then looking back, I've actually kind of come to realise that they were, they've played a bigger part in my, you know, like music listening um, than I necessarily realized at the time of hearing them first if that makes any sense yeah absolutely yeah well let's dive in i'll let you pick the first one whichever one you want to choose and if you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well okay so the the first one is um it's pet shop boys uh and it's a compilation it's discography the complete singles collection which if Discogs is uh, correct, which it normally is, it came out in 1991. Um, and this is the this actually is the first full length album that I bought. Bought it on cassette when I was uh, probably about sort of twelve. No, I would say eleven years old actually, because it was the the year I started secondary school. Um, and I'd kind of probably say that the Pet Shop Boys are probably the band that got me interested in music and like sparked my imagination uh, with regards to what music really was and what it could be and also how it was presented as well. Um, and yeah, I think that there's a lot of what I... A lot of the music I listen to now, you know, I, I, I think I can kind of like trace back some of my favourite um, bits of music to the Pet Shop Boys and kind of like discovering uh, this record. Um, you know, I mean, just sort of like the the cover of it with the, the two of them on there, you know, sort of with this. It's a very sort of like minimal cover. Uh, you've just got Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe on on the front both sort of like dressed completely differently from each other um you know like neil Tennant in this like sharp suit with like short hair and then chris lowe in this sort of like absolutely ridiculous like white pork pie hat like dark shades like kind of some sort of like tartan zip up you know like jacket on or whatever yes um yeah. yeah and then also kind of to just like i think around the time like i sort of bought this as well it was when their album very came out so they were kind of like con they that they were on television quite a lot you know um and i i don't know like did, did you ever used to watch the chart show do you remember the chart show i don't know uh, um, it was just kind of like um what year are we talking here uh, this would have been like late 80s early 90s i think they got rid of it in sort of like 93 or 94 or something like that but um it was on itv every saturday morning and i kind of remember you know like getting like part of a Saturday morning ritual when I was a kid sort of getting up watching children's television you know and then children's television would end and it would run into the chart show um I mean I'd like to add this was about seven I was about seven years old here you know there's in teenage viewing um but um but yeah like the chart show would have these like kind of very very looking back on it now they're probably you know it looks incredibly primitive but at the time like you know it seemed quite sophisticated like these sort of uh, that there was no presenter um so it relied on uh, these com computer generated graphics 
to sort of like present the the music and it would sort of like do all these like kind of like random things like you know like start playing a track and then suddenly sort of about 20 minutes into the track like a fast forward sign would just come up and it would like fast forward the track onto the next one you know it just kind of felt very sort of like it was sort of like a very very exciting way of um having music and quite a fun playful way of having music presented to you when you're a child so i guess like the chart show was also kind of they were responsible for it was responsible for presenting well leading me to the pet shop boys it was through that program that i discovered who they were and it was the the video for go west which i just thought at the time was like you know like i don't know if you've ever seen that video but it's like visually uh, they you know they they were presenting themselves in this very sort of like unique way that a lot of i guess a lot of like pop stars just didn't do at the time you know there was kind of like nothing like them really so the, I, I guess I could have chosen very as well but I've, I've chosen discography because I guess ultimately it's the one that I've kind of you know these songs are kind of imprinted on my mind really um, and you know it's just like I've, I don't think I can ever get bored of hearing you know like some of these tracks like West End Girls just still sound like it's the most incredible sort of like moody pop song oh, you know man, it's like yeah yeah the production's just insane and it's, you know like partly down to the fact they were kind of like you know they were really for a pop band they were kind of really like clever and that they were like mingling with a lot of like the you know sort of like dance what was going on in the dance world at the at the time you know um and that really reflects on the in the production and stuff like that and i think like you know, yeah, Neil Tennant was also a journalist, you know, he kind of, you know, he was, they were studying a lot of what was going on around them at the time. And, you know, I think that kind of obviously had some impact into the, what made their own work so powerful, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever sat down and listened to the Pet Shop Boys consciously. Right. It's been on right. and I've never given it you know uh, my full attention i think even when it's passed into my life but obviously yeah so many of these songs i realized i was very very aware of I and mean, obviously west end girls um but gosh to actually have like a full-on ingestion of these pieces oh i mean as you said west end girls in particular i was blown away uh it's very yeah, tempting it's, to spend all my research kind of having that one on loop um yeah Wow. And the the best thing about that song as well is like there's about like fifteen odd different versions of it, so you know you can like <laughs> <laughs> Make rediscover the song many many times, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, and there's but also just other you know like the the Elvis cover. Um, yeah, I think it's really you know it's quite a clever clever tune really. Um, you know like pop pop wise, and then yeah, it's just like. Uh, being boring it's another one like this like incredible sort of like melancholic sort of um, sophisticated sounding pop song it's just yeah it just kind of blows my mind every time I hear that one really when you think back to listening to it when you first got it did you I can't remember if you mentioned the format that you got it on was it cassette I got it on cassette yeah 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 so yeah. when you think back to listening to it where where are you what are you doing like when you first got it 
Well, I, I've, I've, I first bought it from a, a, rec a CD, well, yeah, CD tape shop in France, just outside of Brittany. I was on holiday with my parents. Um, and, yeah, I just remember listening to this in the car as we're driving around, um, you know, like rewinding uh, certain tracks. I think, like, the, the big ones were, at the time, were West End Girls, um, Suburbia, what have I done to deserve this uh, being boring? Hmm. Yeah, just kind of constantly rewinding those tunes and just sitting there listening to them, you know, and just thinking, yeah, this is this is kind of this is what it's all about. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and just kind of legit. Yeah, again, just sort of like looking at them and just like kind of yeah, just thinking Chris Lowe was like the the coolest looking motherfucker, you know, <laughs> just like just this kind of bizarre sort of like looking guy that just sort of like is in the background you're just kind of like what is he doing <laughs> you know like because also like you don't I, I had no idea you know like you don't understand electronic music really when you first well I, I, I didn't no. you know it was like, like this thing that's just you know like you know what a band is and you understand instruments and you know guitars drums you hit them they make a sound blah 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 but like you know, seeing the Pet Shop Boys on TV, you know, just like seeing Neil Tennant singing and then Chris Lowe in the back with like one keyboard and you're like, what? <laughs> it's, it just takes one keyboard to make this like music. <laughs> you know, it's like crazy, but like obviously it isn't, you know, but you just don't have that kind of, um, you're not privileged to that knowledge at the time, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was kind of another kind of part of the mystery, f you know, and the love of it for me that just sort of like drew me in and just got me like fascinated with music made on machines i guess so where did that take you after you got into the pet shop boys um pet shop boys uh got into then depeche mode a few years later because they came they came back with an album sort of around 1997 but the, the, the sort of difference between depeche mode and the pet shop boys even though there's kind of like many similarities on the surface is like I think Depeche Mode definitely sort of went on to be influenced and sort of tainted by kind of stadium rock. Right. You know, they they, they kind of like really sort of like embraced this kind of like corny sort of like stadium rock vibe, um, which is kind of fun. But, you know, like I think the Pet Shop Boys were always, always kind of like were a bit more interesting and a bit more conscious of the art of music and where it came from and you know i think depeche mode definitely just got like uh tainted by rock and roll in the end um <laughs> but yeah no sorry to go back to did like yeah depeche mode um you know obviously i got into like stuff like the prodigy uh which is around at the time like you know underworld orbital as well that that was another one i was like kind of another group i was kind of fascinated with for a short while nice yeah, just you know, a f future sound of London, of course. You know, like the base, like the Aphex Twin. Um, yeah, sort of anything that was kind of like, you know, electronic and would have kind of been either playing at Glastonbury Festival or maybe in this, like the indie press at the time. You know, that was kind of uh, a lot of the stuff I was that I was sort of discovering and enjoying. Um, and then, yeah, so, you know, and then from that, you know, sort of like bands like Suicide and White House. Um, yeah. I kind of, you know, which, I mean, kind of sounds ridiculous, but, you know, like, I definitely think that being into the Pet Shop Boys definitely made me kind of, like, appreciate 
suicide and White House a bit easier right, later yeah. on, you know, <laughs> oh. even though they're kind of completely opposite ends of the music um electronic music spectrum really yeah well hearing you lay it out like that you that sounds like quite an organic trajectory when you lay out the bands in that way um, yeah well i mean it, it, it makes sense in my head you know yeah but, um, uh, yeah kind of that's good enough for me yeah <laughs> yeah um and at this time when you were just sort of getting uh, finding your feet with electronic music and and getting a sense of what was possible where were you in terms of thinking about making your own music i mean you had you started at this time or were you kind of starting to get thoughts of how you might express yourself i'd made attempts to i mean i i was playing i was playing in bands at school um i was playing guitar but i'd also uh i remember my dad took me to a music tech fair in olympia or Earls court when i was about 13 and I remember having they there was a Roland stand and they had a an an MC five oh five uh no MC three oh three groove box on there and this was when it had just come out and like I was just I just remember playing with that for about two hours and just thinking like oh this is like this is it, you know, like <laughs> this is this is what I want to do. This is me, you know. Um, and then I, I eventually got one like for Christmas about a year and a half later or something. And yeah, I was just kind of like, you know, lost in it, but never really sort of like did any, anything of worth with it, I would say, you know, but it definitely did kind of like, that was the, you know, made me realize that it wasn't um, electronic music. Isn't this kind of like smoke and mirrors thing that I maybe thought it was to begin with. <laughs> and then from there, sort of, you know, like being into punk as well at the time and then playing in sort of like a few kind of punk bands and that leading on to noise music and stuff. And that was, yeah, I guess that was kind of the way of I found my way into it, I suppose, from the from the gutter up. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe still in the gutter, right. who knows, yeah. you know. <laughs> Depends who you ask, I guess. But. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, so... Just to close out on this Pet Shop Boys record, I mean, do you have, I don't know how easy it is to answer, but do you have a favourite track? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd, I'd say I could pick three tracks. It would be West End Girls, What Have I Done to Deserve This, and Being Boring, which I think are just like three of the greatest pop tracks of all time. And then maybe the best kind of like, you know, the ones you wouldn't necessarily think of, but actually maybe are the best tracks on the record are Love Comes Quickly and the Sterling Void cover, It's All Right, which is like, you know, this is another thing, like going back to what I was saying actually about like the, the covers they did, you know, they did these covers that were just like, you you just made them into their own songs, you know, like you, yeah. you listen to the covers and then you listen to the original versions and you're like, bloody hell, you know, they just, they really did something with that, you know, like the Sterling Void one in particular is like, you know, I think it's, I, I think of it as a different song in its own right, you know, it's just, yeah, beautiful tune. If that's what you want.
Great, well, let's go to your second record now, Luke, if you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important as well. Okay, so the second one is Scum by Napalm Death, which is a funny one because I guess sort of going back to what I was saying about um, hearing something at the time and then years later kind of becoming aware of its um, importance in your life, like this is definitely one that I can... I can say that was definitely the case with this one. Um, I mean, kind of thinking about... I've been sort of like trying to think over the last week as well, like when I actually first heard this, and it would have been my entry into Napalm Death was through hearing them on a CD, a cover mount CD with Kara- on, um, from Kerrang! Uh, when an album from... nine I can't remember what it's called. Hang on. I think it's Inside the Torn Apart. Um, yeah, Inside the Torn Apart, which was kind of a bit more of a just like straight up kind of guess sort of like groove based metal album, like with kind of a bit more sort of like death metal kind of like more a kind of like death metal version of like a lot of what was coming out in, in on earache and stuff at the time. Uh-huh. But yeah, so so hearing that and just kind of thinking, oh wow, this is kind of like you know this this is quite exciting. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've I've never heard anyone sing like that before. You know, um, right, yeah. it's kind of worth noting as well. Sort of like around this, like around sort of like nineteen ninety seven, um, I started reading Kerrang, and it was all full of these bands that I just never heard of before. You know, that were kind of you'd never hear them on the radio. Um, I mean, even though some of them are quite big, they wouldn't be played on the radio. The only time you'd ever really sort of discover them would be on there was like rock programs on uh mtv that would be on like really really late at night and i could never watch them because it'd be on on on, like a tuesday on a you know (laughs) at midnight or something like that and i'd obviously be getting up for school the next day so it was only really through kind of like these cover mount cds with kerrang um that was sort of like able to hear this this music and and yeah the the napalm death track kind of stuck with me and then i remember buying this this CD because I was kind of curious always to sort of like go back to the beginning of a band, um, you know, and kind of uh, find out what we, you know, like start at the start and then kind of go on from there. And I remember buying this from HMV in Oxford Street and just kind of like seeing the number of tracks <laughs> on the back of the on the on the back of the record and just being like, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yes, getting it home, listening to it, and just kind of just thinking, you know, like not not really getting it, but kind of like think knowing there's something there that you know this is like a this is a bizarre record, you know, like this is like nothing I've ever heard of before. Mm. But having obviously like not really much kind of frame of reference for it, other than you know what I would read in Kerrang, which kind of wasn't really that much to be honest. Um, yeah, it just kind of had this sort of aura of mystery around it I suppose and then there was a period of it was not not too long after that where they appeared on um do you remember TFI Friday with Chris Evans yes I do yeah that they appeared on TFI Friday yeah with on uh it was kind of like I guess it was sort of a bit of a joke you know that they were sort of brought in as like something to to basically go haha like isn't check out this wacky band you know um and they did uh 
off this record they did The Kill, You Suffer and something else as well that I can't remember but I remember The Kill because I was like oh fuck you know like this is off that CD <laughs> um, so that was quite you know that, that was quite surreal and seeing that you know seeing them and just being like wow this is what they look like blah 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 so then kind of fast forward I guess about maybe a few more years in the, in the meantime listening to like John Peel hearing other you know like kind of similar things like uh, you know ex- extreme noise terror I guess who Peel used to play quite a bit so, so yeah getting into um, going to hardcore gigs for the first time and then seeing bands uh, play like music like um, what is on scum you know and mm. seeing that in the flesh kind of like opened the world out a little bit more and sort of gave me the context that I didn't necessarily have when I first heard it but also just kind of like realising oh fuck you know like this uh, they're, they're basically all just sort of like ripping this record off you know or kind of you know just being like oh this is like you know this obviously must be where it come all came from and yeah like I guess just over the years kind of reading about it hearing more about it you know I think it kind of had its like uh 30th anniversary like a couple of years ago or something yeah and just sort of like when you you know obviously these like landmarks come up and they're kind of you know you get articles and stuff and people reflecting on it and just kind of learning over time actually like how kind of like sort of unique this record is really and how you know how it kind of really did come out of nowhere yeah it's just and the fact also that it kind of is the intersection of all of the a lot of the UK underground music that I enjoy and kind of hold dear, um, especially with regards to you know it came it came from punk, but then also so many of the members then went on to do other things afterwards. You know, like the lineup on the first side of Scum, the Justin Broderick, Mick Harris, Nick Bullen lineup. Um, you know, like Justin went on to obviously form Godflesh, you know, but he was, listen, you know, inspired by power electronics at the time and things like that. And I think I remember either reading somewhere or Nick Bullen telling me at one point that him and Justin met at a mar- um, on a market stall talking about throbbing gristle tapes, you know. Wow. Um, and then obviously Mick Harris and Nick went on to form Scorn, which then Mick kind of like carried on into the, you know, like late nineties and basically kind of, you know, sort of, you can definitely sort of like trace that into things like dubstep and, you know, they were both sort of involved in drum and bass to a, you know, like small degree. And Justin Now's like quite prolific as JK Flesh, you know, like yeah. doing a lot of like techno and stuff like that, but also kind of ambient music and, yeah, I just you know you can trace so much back to this record, and I think yeah, without Scum, it's like I think the UK underground would be quite different, you know. And then the, even the the second side of the lineup, you've got the more metal part of the bands, which I guess went on to then define the band in later years. But you know, like Bill Steer from Carcass and Lee Dorian went on to Cathedral, and obviously runs Rise Above Records and stuff. You know, that's kind of like yeah, that kind of then sort of 
carried napalm in, off into the sort of the, the world of metal and which is what became their legacy really but yeah but it's kind of a they're a fascinating band to really sort of like think about and you know this record in particular it's kind of uh yeah i think it just kind of spins me out every time i think about it really it's, yeah yeah i mean that's it i've had a few instances of listening to it prior to really fully grasping the context and the significance and as you say the way in which this lineup or the two lineups here flowered outward in so many different directions and well yeah this is i mean the 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 context of the record i think i only really properly understood about five years ago because when i first when i first heard it there's no way of really knowing you know that the the whole thing about obviously you, you you don't have the internet like back then or you know well my internet access was very sort of like restricted or whatever it was only at school I could really access it and you know you you couldn't just like read about all this stuff instantly then it was just uh yeah it just wasn't possible and you know sort of the whole nuances of the fact that the a side and the second side of this record are essentially different bands yeah that isn't something that I was ever really aware of I would say probably until about kind of five or so years ago you know like the back of the cd it just says thanks to justin and nick for playing on tracks one to twelve you know but that could have just been (laughs) oh yeah it's just popped in and like did a little kind of guitar solo or whatever you know yeah um yeah yeah did you come to like the record prior to having that context to slot it into was there yeah completely yeah because i mean i i I mean i liked it you know when i i definitely liked it when i first heard it it was just more of a kind of like it's the same as hearing when i heard white house you know it's like i had to learn how to like it i guess that's probably the best way of putting it you know it's like you know you, you understand that you when you hear something that challenges you for the first time and you you know you like it but you don't know why you like it and you have to learn and understand what it is that you like about it yes um and that takes you know it takes time and it's kind of part of the what makes a record like this so rewarding you know and you sent across as well a link to a documentary which i watched through this morning which goes into the history as told by mick Harris, he kind of runs yeah. through everything and takes, you know, the camera into the studio where they recorded Scum and the rehearsal space at his old house. And um, what was it about uh, the documentary in particular that you thought meant that it was important to have as a kind of companion to this album when you sent it over? Well, I just think it it kind of lays the history of it out in, you know, pretty like plain terms. Um, and it's kind of interesting to it's interesting to think of napalm death really originally as a punk band which i guess is what exactly what they were and that's kind of something that you know you only really discover about the band when you kind of like go deep into the roots of this record yeah um mick harris is really kind of funny charismatic guy i think you know yeah. like i've i've never met him but he's like his presence and you know the way he kind of talks about stuff i just find kind of endlessly entertaining <laughs> Um, in the best way of possible, of course, you know. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah. So did, you know, just kind of like being aware of the the 
a, the origin of the where the band was at when they walked into the studio to record that a side um you know for 50 quid or whatever it was like and then the acceleration on the b side into this kind of like thing where we just want to play as fast as possible you know and it's kind of like in some way like kind of think of it as like the acceleration of punk in a sense you know it's kind of like this is in a way the last punk's last truly sort of experimental record it's sort of the final frontier of punk in in my eyes you know right. accelerated to a point where it just can't go anymore it can't evolve anymore it's like you know you, mick harrison basically took the the beat from chaos uk and turned it into the bots now the blast beat and it's you know you, you can't can't take it any further really <laughs> yeah it's like terminal velocity yeah yeah um and it's great to see as well mick can i just sit behind the kit and uh demo the blast beat as well with the yeah. alternate symbols like it, it kind of clicked why it sounds so frenetic when you've got like two layers of symbol wash going on at once you know? yeah yeah um i also enjoyed the anecdote that they said that when they went on tour they would knock down as many doors in the venue yeah, it's amazing that. yeah 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 <laughs> he calls it doing doing indoors <laughs> Him and Barney Greenway would do that, yeah. It's kind of like dumb, dumb as fuck, but, you know, kind of hilarious at the same time. Yeah, it definitely fits, yeah. doesn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, do you... I think there is a point as well in the documentary where one of the interviewees, a music journalist, I believe, talks about the fact that while there are two distinct sides, in his opinion, it's a kind of coherent whole. But, I mean, do you have a a preferred side of the record of the two lineups? Um, I was thinking about this. I kind of like, I guess I, if, if I had a gun to my head, <laughs> which I hope isn't going to happen anytime soon, I would, um, I would probably say the first side and that's mainly just because, you know, it's got Justin and Nick on it who then went on to kind of just like the whole thing I was saying about the acceleration, the thinking about it in the as an acceleration of punk you know sort of thinking of them kind of like doing that and then just kind of like dropping their instruments and just being like well we've done that now so yeah you know, let's do something else and then you know going on to do godflesh and scorn which is kind of like a bit of a it's kind of a bit of a it's a bold move you know yeah um and then mick but still mick retaining the vision and pushing through with new musicians and then also creating something new and unprecedented and then just running with that and taking it into yeah it's kind of, it's, it's amazing really you know like it's kind of yeah it just fills me with joy to to listen to <laughs> yeah. and think about like yeah yeah i love it it's, fa it's fabulous i think it's so great this idea that almost the band had so much energy that it blew itself apart midway exactly. through halfway making the through yeah exactly How yeah yeah good is that yeah um, yeah, I mean, what other, you know, I, I, I kind of think what would they, what would it have been like if that second side hadn't have been recorded? You know, it's kind of like, it's hmm. kind of funny to think about, like, if it had just then ended up becoming this another, yet another obscure punk relic that had come out of the, that sort of like DIY anarcho scene at the time, you know, yeah. like if it just sort of, yeah, left, been left around and 
you know, sort of like dug up 20 years later, but obviously without the, any of the stuff that had come after it to really kind of like frame it in a, in the context which makes it so unique in the first place totally yeah Yeah, particularly because i read that that first half was designed initially to be part of a split release which yes you know yeah no one i mean it's you know unfortunately there's no real reason for it but no one talks about seminal splits do they it's albums that get canonized well in it, it it's more common in hardcore i guess i mean I guess a, so, yeah. a seminal split i did actually think about a seminal split when i was thinking of these um records to pick and actually there is a the the split on discord between the faith and void is i would definitely uh. say is a seminal split but i you know that's a very pedantic thing of me to say jack so i apologize <laughs> you know i don't mean to pick apart your words there no, but yeah not at all. um Stand corrected. Uh, have you yeah. have you seen um, Napalm Death play live? Um, no, I haven't actually. Ah, I had a ticket to see them about eleven years ago when they played at the Camden Underworld, and I was too hungover to go. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> do you think you'll go see them now? Yes, I would do. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I mean, I, I, I still listen to their records. You know, like they, um, I still check out the records. Like the one from a few years ago, uh, Utilitarian, hmm. yeah. is is pretty good. You know, it's got like uh, it's kind of more of like they ended up kind of getting into this more sort of like technical death metal sound, which kind of got slightly tainted by a more kind of like groove orientated thing in the nineties, like kind of I don't know, I guess like proto new metal, yeah, like Machine Head or something like that. Sure. They kind of definitely did get a bit kind of affected by that but then they went back into like in the 2000s they kind of went back into more of a kind of harsh sound that was more of this kind of like technical death metal but influenced by you know things like coalesce and stuff like that who you know they did a split with and stuff mm. um and yeah that I, th- I think that utilitarian album's like thoroughly decent you know it's got either even like john zorn pops up on it and does a sax solo for like a, a brief moment you know yeah, and it sounds sounds great. Oh, amazing! Um, so yeah, I, I I would go and see them. They 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 played a few years ago as well at the Electric Ballroom with Brugeria and someone else I can't remember. And I very nearly went, but it was I just couldn't afford it, so you know I didn't bother. <laughs> I did go and see um I did go and see Carcass play at the Underworld a while ago for. You know, they they did a three night residency there, and tickets were a fiver. So wow. I went because it was a fiver. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good um, guy. Yeah, it was good. Nice, amazing. Um, yeah, I've seen them a couple of times actually. But um, oh right, where? But whereabouts? Um, once in Weymouth, which um, right, it's incredibly bleak. I my my partner was in a power violence band at the time, so she played in support of them. What but, was the band called? Uh, her band was Witch Cult. Um, I've heard of Witch Cult. Really. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. yeah, they were incredible, but I think that was certainly... Uh, it made so much sense that they were in support, because, again, Which I think... Which cult? The singer, the singer is Dean. Yeah, Dean, yeah. He was Dean. Yeah, yeah I, I know Dean, yeah. Oh, fab- yeah, we played in a band yeah. together, actually. Um, oh, right. Yeah, okay. so it all, all connects yeah. together. But, yeah, I mean, I, I love the fact that they're still playing Tracks Off Scum. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, you know, yeah. And it, it, even though, like, none of those members were on that record you know it's it's part of the history of 
what they are now you know like they wouldn't be there on stage if it wasn't for those songs so you know why why shouldn't they play them you know they 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 own them you know it's kind of yeah i mean i kind of think of napalm death there's they're practically a british institution these days you know So let's go to your final record now, Luke. If you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important as well. Okay, so this, uh, the th- third album is, it's by Adam Bowman and it's called Music and Words. And I guess, yeah, it's sort of going to why this one's important or why I decided this one was important was, I guess it was the first um, first time I'd ever really heard free improvisation on record and also presented in a way that was kind of so different to how I had seen it presented in a live context um so just to kind of like give a little bit of background on that I guess kind of like I was going to I was going to a lot of gigs in London um sort of from the early 2000s onwards um and i used to go to this thing called boat ting which was a a night that was on a boat that was docked by a temple tube station on the thames um just by the south bank and it was kind of like a really it was really really strange night because it was booked by a guy who played drums in a band called Nort, who were kind of like a um i think they're still playing actually like technically they're still together um but they're kind of like a very very technical um math rock band i guess you know um and the drummer from that band used to curate this event and his partner at the time was i, I think it like she would do the other side of the curation which was a lot more of the kind of like free improvisation and like weird performance art stuff that would happen there so you kind of had this like you go there you'd see a band you know albeit kind of like a sort of more like left field kind of like experimental one but like you know like a a band nonetheless and then you just get some like weird like wacky as hell free improv like (laughs) right after it you know just and then maybe like someone like reciting a poem about their genitalia at the end you know it's just like this like mad kind of like um cross-section of like stuff that was going on in the london like diy london music scene at the time um and i remember going to uh i went there once and i saw the country teasers and the bowman family which was Adam Bowman is and his brother Jonathan Bowman, who are the Bowman brothers. Um, but it was the thing they did with uh, an extended group of people. So hence the the Bowman brothers became the Bowman family. And yeah, just kind of remember seeing 
Adam Bowman playing with his table of just completely random objects, you know, <laughs> with like, and just thinking like, you know, trying to place it in my head, like what, how it was he came to be performing with these and what they did and what, you know, like if there was any kind of like logic uh, behind the sequence in which they were being used, but then kind of like realizing after, you know, sort of like 10 or 15 minutes that just like, it was kind of pointless to think about any sort of anything like that. And I guess that was kind of the um, important in sort of like breaking down uh, free improvisation to me just in a way like it's probably best not to just not think about it and just kind of take it in and accept it for what it is Mm -hmm. and and the Bowman family were sort of like nothing else I'd really seen also in the sense that it was very funny you know like there was this element of comedy about it where you know they could be telling jokes but these aren't like necessarily things that you would recognize as jokes you know it's a more kind of like absurdist kind of like um almost dadaist kind of approach to humor um so yeah and then i think i saw bone brothers play another time after that you know they were always kind of like prop like popping up at various sort of events that i was going to um but then I've, a friend of mine like gave me this CD one day and, uh, you know, like it, before then I'd never really actually sort of ever considered the fact that any of these people were recording what they did. Mm. Um, and I never really kind of thought it was something that you could ever listen to. Um, right. So, yeah, getting this CD and being kind of like, wow, these guys actually make music, you know, that's kind of like, that's that's interesting and my friend just being like just you have to listen to this it's like it's my favorite album like and this you know which is kind of like when someone tells you it's their favorite album and it's an adam bowman cd you know you should probably be like oh it's yeah okay (laughs) this is first on the pile to uh (laughs) to listen to and just kind of yeah as soon as i put it on i was just like you know i didn't i listened to it all the way through you know, I was laughing. Uh, yeah. It was just, yeah, it's just great. And there are things, you know, things on these, on the first two tracks, you know, which like kind of, I love the way it starts off with these kind of, you know, metallic sounds and, you know, these sort of like textures, which also I'd not heard on record before. And I think that there's definitely been an influence in my own work. You know, I've kind of like gone on to use a lot of the same kind of like, textures in what I do and yeah just kind of then how that turns into this like bizarre kind of like tape collage of a documentation of his Christmas um you know these like odd sort of like moments where he's just kind of like walking around like the town he's from and looking into people's houses and stuff like that you know going to the <laughs> going to the pub just like general sort of these, these these mundane moments but sort of documented in a way that makes you think well, why is he documenting this you know like um, you know like but the surrealness and absurdity of it just kind of like takes over and just kind of takes you in it you know it's kind of it just brings you along and makes you just kind of i don't know love it it's like yeah i think it's a 
it's kind of like nothing else this record you know i mean um when i listen to it now i still kind of you know i almost i almost approach it to kind of like i would watching a film or something you know like if you yeah. if there's a film you really like you set out uh you know like a space of you know like time to just sit down and watch it and so you can like get drawn into it and it's kind of the same with 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 this record you know i kind of approach it in the same way it's almost like listening to uh like listening to a podcast i guess or something you know like it's something i definitely like to listen to at night before going to bed you know headphones in and just kind of like yeah i'm I'm there again with Adam at Waterloo Station, and we're we're going back to his his mum's house for Christmas. You know, there. yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you laugh out loud when you listen to it, and I think the the text that accompanies the record on the Bandcamp is it starts with the line something like, "When's the last time you laughed out loud at an avant-garde record?" or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because even when avant-garde records are trying to be funny, they're very, they very rarely are, I find, you know. Like, I, I don't actually really like humour, um, well, over-explicit humour in, in music, you know, and especially not experimental avant-garde music. But the way the humour arises in this record and the way why I like it so much, I think, is because of that kind of, like, absurdist kind of you know just sort of like what the hell is what the hell is going on here why is this uh why is this thing you know being um yeah <laughs> if that makes any yeah. sense you know like why is yeah this like, turkish delight getting such an intense review uh yeah on tape yeah 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 exactly <laughs> and then there's 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 you know like one one part as well which just like where he's reading out the recipe for that um for that fish dish yes and then you've just got the you know like the monotonous sort of like you know um reading of this recipe with this kind of like absolutely fucking mental music that he's listening to in the background <laughs> you know you're just like what on earth are you listening to you know um just you just, just like trying to imagine these environments which are just sort of like documented like so kind of like brutally in a way like yeah yeah yeah. And uh yeah, I mean the, the, there's another thing as well like the 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 music he listens to whilst he's, you know, like reciting these sort of like monologues is kind of it's always sort of quite interesting, you know, at one point there's that's kind of like gem like gentle sort of like soothing raga in the background <laughs> as well which kind of just pops up and yeah. Yeah, there's a point I think as well where his mum says that she can't hack what he's listening to it was driving her mad so she turned it off yeah yeah and then she hops off upstairs and he's like right time to put it back on again um yeah <laughs> yeah i i had a great time with this i mean i think his tone of voice as well is i mean comedically immaculate uh yeah it's got a very deliberate sense of timing and tonality by the sounds of it uh well it's very dry but i yes. don't, but i also wonder if it's like I can never work out with Adam Bowman if it's ever if the dryness is intentional or if it's just the way he is and the way he talks and I have a f kind of I have a feeling it, it may be the latter you know yeah. but obviously there's uh I mean I've I've only ever met Adam Bowman once and I I saw him at um I saw him at London Bridge train station at about half 11 at night and I just 
went up to him and, and I was like, oh, you're, you're Adam Bowman, aren't you? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. And he had this, like, amplifier with him and, you know, it was like kind of, I guess he'd just done a gig and he was carting his way back to um, home or whatever in South London. And, uh, yeah, I, I had a bass guitar with me and he just, he just started asking me about my bass guitar and then, you know, train came and then that was it. You know, I've never actually spoken to him again but um did you tell him about this record and the fact that it kind of meant so much to you did that no not really no (laughs) i don't i I kind of feel like i don't really need to you know um you know i mean maybe someone might send him a link to this or something afterwards but um yeah he refers also during the recording actually there's two things that i really really like which come up in my mind at the moment there's the point. There's a point where he says, "Moving forward in time now." At the start of one of his recordings, which yeah, is so fabulous. It's like he's aware of the fact that there's a lot of like the, when he's editing it together, people are going to feel a sudden jump. Um, but said so casually. Um, there's another bit where uh, I mean, there's several bits where he talks about the tape recorder, like mucking up and screwing up. Yeah, which again I think is wonderful, given that he's manipulating so much of it anyway. Um, yeah, but I mean, you you talk about you know wanting to perhaps have humour as a part of your music and the music that you do, and trying to incorporate that. I mean, is is kind of failure or things not going as intended? Is that something that fits within the frame of of the way that you approach your music as well? possibly but I, I would kind of I guess I would never show it if that makes any sense like not out of any kind of like not out of any way of wanting to show a weakness or anything to the like work itself but yeah. just kind of I, I don't know how I could how it could sort of manifest in the work and for that to come through um if that makes any sense yeah for sure like I think it would be very difficult to um I think with my kind of the the music that I make it kind of does have you know like for for better or worse like it sort of has ended up being perceived in this kind of like meticulous way perhaps um and I don't mind that because you know that's kind of like that is kind of part of how it comes across anyway you know like it's kind of part of the process of making it um so any kind of like imperfection or anything or any mistake, if it was to arise, I think it would probably just appear intentional afterwards and I wouldn't um, communicate that right. it was any anything but, you know, <laughs> unless I was asked specifically about, oh, so what about this one piece on your, you know, that this track where this thing just comes in or, you know, I'd be like, oh, well, you know, I'll course i'm happy to explain them you know but i would kind of feel no reason to explicitly um reveal the origins of it yeah fair i I mean certainly a couple of points on your record where there are elements that come in that feel almost to have some form of rhythmic alignment with other elements and then explicitly Mm. don't which i mean maybe doesn't fit into the framework of failure but certainly maybe uh a looseness certainly. well it's it, it's like a lot of the time things like that are just complete chance you know and it's like a, I guess a lot of the way I work with stuff is like I have a lot of things accumulated and 
you know, if I sometimes I'm just like, oh, well, I wonder what this thing will sound like if I, you know, put this in the track and run this alongside, a, you know, like a re- repetitive loop or something. And then, you know, you get these like moments where you're like, oh, well, they kind of they kind of work together. They sit nicely together, you know, where they're sort of like in kind of in it sounds like they're in sync but they're not you know um it's just sort of multiple processes of just chipping away at stuff until you kind of reach this point where you've found something that kind of works but you sort of don't know why it works if that makes any sense inside the elms shopping center Listening to the Salvation Army band. Again, absolutely adoring the record, and it's been wonderful to speak to as well about these three important albums as well um so thank you luke it's been great to speak to you no oh, thanks jack yeah th- thanks for asking it's been uh it's been a pleasure and if people want to keep up to speed with what you're doing uh where should they be going online well as loath as i kind of uh <laughs> am to say the best place at the moment is the uh facebook page um but I am working on a website at the moment, um, which is kind of taking a bit of time, partly down to my own lacklustre kind of uh, approach, but well, to the website at least. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so for now, Facebook, social media channels, you know, blah, 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 all those kind of horrible, toxic places that um, <laughs> we seem to find ourselves spending more and more time at. Grim, isn't it? In, in the moment yeah. yeah on that thoroughly dystopian note thank you very much once again and to everyone listening i will see you next time 